Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. I'm Robert Armengol. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger. So today on the show, we're dusting off a little episode we first aired in 2021. It's called WTF GOP. Back then, we were wondering how and why the Republican Party was still clinging to Trumpian politics after losing so soundly. Somehow, this episode remains doggedly, even annoyingly relevant. Just look at the insane selection of the Speaker of the House last week. Right, right. I mean, it took 15 rounds of voting over several days, all because of intransigent far-right Republicans who refused to support their own party's nominee, Representative Kevin McCarthy. Those holdouts included members of Congress who have peddled conspiracy theories and voted against birthright citizenship. They've said the pandemic was a hoax, that the election was stolen from Trump in 2020 without any evidence, that Antifa was behind the Capitol attack two years ago. I mean, this might not be Republican Party platform stuff, but it's certainly tolerated and will have to continue to be tolerated. And as our listeners know, I like to put things in historical context. And so I'm wondering, where does this all come from? You know, when did this shift to the conspiratorial and truth doubting right really take place? Well, those were exactly the questions on our minds when we caught up with our friend Nicole Hemmer back at the end of season two. We're going to replay that conversation Will and Siva had with Nikki. You're going to hear also from UVA political scientist Larry Sabato and from a former Republican member of Congress who has her own issues with, well, what's going on with the GOP. Here's Nikki. The conservative movement since World War II had this thread running through it of anti-democratic politics. Now, Nikki's a columnist, the host and producer of her own various podcasts, and also a historian of the conservative media and the American right. And one of the things she told us is the illiberal strain of conservatism was alive and well as far back as the days of President Eisenhower, although it remained mostly on the margins in right-leaning intellectual circles. For instance, William F. Buckley Jr. in 1957 writes a piece in National Review where he argues that in the South, the minority should rule. Um, that democracy doesn't work there because, as he put it, white people were the superior race. And if they weren't superior in numbers, well, they should rule anyway. I think actually what is wrong in Mississippi, sir, is not that not enough Negroes are voting, but that too many white people are, are, are voting. That's Buckley a few years after writing, quote, Why the South Must Prevail, squaring off in a famous debate with the writer James Baldwin. Buckley was answering a question about whether more black Southerners should be allowed to vote. Not that they vote, but that they be prepared to vote. What are we going to do with the Negroes? He made no effort to hide the elitism and the racism at the core of his beliefs. It is much more complicated, sir, than simply the question of giving them the vote. Uh, if I were myself a constituent of the community of Mississippi at this moment, what I would do is vote to lift the standards uh, of the vote so as to disqualify 65% uh, of the white people who are presently voting. Uh, not, not simply... Not simply uh, as it happens, Buckley's own perspective on the race problem, as they said in those days, would actually come to soften over time. At the same time, those anti-democratic ideals he espoused 
grew in the Republican mainstream. They helped the GOP peel off Dixiecrats who were dissatisfied with their own party's support of civil rights. And let's not forget about Goldwater. This is another good friend of ours, Larry Sabato, who joined us in that conversation with Nikki. Larry is a political scientist and pollster here at the University of Virginia, and he reminded us that Barry Goldwater, the Arizona senator, took up the far-right cause and made it palatable. That extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. He convinced the GOP to let him carry the flag in the 1964 presidential contest against Lyndon Johnson. Moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. We got a glimpse of the future in 1964 when the right wing took over the Republican Party in nominating Goldwater and then in experiencing a massive defeat. I think that was a turning point for some Republicans in losing faith in democracy and starting to look at other alternatives. Now, it would take a long time for this hostility to pluralism and democracy to build up in the GOP. After all, as Nikki recalled, Ronald Reagan swept into office with mass appeal in the early 1980s. The heart of America is strong. You had this moment of kind of Republican democratic triumphalism. Right, he was winning in these huge majorities. It was the height of the Cold War, and democracy was the watchword for foreign policy. People everywhere hunger for peace and a better life. The tide of the future is a freedom tide, and our struggle for democracy cannot and will not be denied. And yet, by the 1990s, as the Cold War ends, as Reagan's legacy begins to fade, that democratic pessimism starts to reemerge in the party, and it just grows stronger over the, the next 30 years. But I am not going to uh, absolve Donald Trump of having supercharged this war against democracy. Again, Larry Sabato. He is the key factor here. I think Donald Trump opened the door to the most extreme parts of the Republican Party. He legitimized them. He encouraged them to move off the democracy track almost entirely. He gave them hope. And this occurred as early as 2016. And I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. 2020 wasn't unique. He was attacking the election process when he won. That was the tip-off to what was going to happen when he lost. Well, we now know what would happen when he lost. Trump and his lawyers tried to overturn Joe Biden's victory. And when those efforts failed, Donald J. Trump all but pleaded for an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. But you know, Will, one of the more disturbing things about this episode in American politics has been the almost puritanical purging of the GOP's ranks, of anyone who dares to question Donald Trump's lies. 
I mean, we saw how Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming, an extreme conservative, was pushed out of her leadership role in the U.S. House after vocally criticizing the former president. Oh, yeah. The blacklist even includes elder statesmen, the former presidential nominees, Mitt Romney, who voted to impeach Trump, and the late Senator John McCain. Larry Sabato told us that as many as 30 state chapters of the Republican Party have been taken over by Trumpism. And as Nikki Hammer put it, this is where the history has landed us. One of the qualifications now for being a Republican is that you have to fully embrace Donald Trump and all of his assorted conspiracies. And that doesn't leave any space for an embrace of democracy because Trump so thoroughly rejects it. I do think that there's something deeper there than just Donald Trump, but Donald Trump then metastasized it and made it um, not just space in the Republican Party to be anti-democratic, but making it necessary as a condition of membership. We're going to come back to that conversation with Larry and Nikki in just a few minutes. But first, we wanted to check in with one of those Republicans who has gone out on a limb to reject Trump's cult of personality. Barbara, are you there? I am here. Good to be with you. Barbara, could you just tell our listeners who you are? I am Barbara Comstock. I am a former congresswoman who served in Virginia's 10th district. Before that, I was in the Virginia State House for five years And I was previously on Capitol Hill for 10 years working for my predecessor, Congressman Frank Wolf. And during the 90s, I was a chief counsel on the Government Reform Committee. So I have been a Republican for a lot longer than Donald Trump. Well, Barbara, you wrote a really striking op-ed. It didn't pull any punches. It appeared in The New York Times. And you called Donald Trump, quote, the patron saint of sore losers. Uh, You call in that article, you call on your fellow Republicans to support a full investigation of the events of January 6th. We know there are many other investigations, especially the federal criminal investigations that are going on, but you still feel the congressional inquiry um, would do some good for the Republican Party. Is that right? Uh, Yes. And in fact, you know, even though you certainly see many Republicans want to move on and say, let's move on from January 6th, but the problem is Donald Trump is not moving on from November 3rd. And now you have this movement, which Steve Bannon, the guy who was indicted and then pardoned by Donald Trump calls the November 3rd movement, where they are going to demand that Republicans have to accept the big lie that there was enough fraud in elections that it would have overturned numerous states. And they are insisting upon that type of fealty. And so it's really a deranged uh, dynamic created here, which is why I said, you know, he's a dangerous but also diminished man. Well, it's clear now that the Republican leadership does not want to investigate anything about the Trump era. And I'm wondering, does this kind of obstruction of fact finding make you feel like there's no place left in the Republican Party for you or, 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 or for a sense of accountability? Uh, no, because I think um, that's why, you know, I've, I'm working with, you know, Adam Kinzinger, with Liz Cheney, with, you know, Mitt Romney, people like Ben Sass, who I think are more the future of the party. Uh, Bill Cassidy from Louisiana, I think, is very courageous on saying this. And what he pointed out, he said, listen, there's going to be an investigation either way. Why not have it be something that's trusted and bipartisan? 
So Barbara, if I may, um, I'd like to um, talk a bit about your your time in the House, right? You won your House seat in Virginia's 10th Congressional District in 2014 after Representative Wolf retired, and you held on to that seat until the 2018 midterms, until the so-called blue wave of that year. So what happened in America that year? What happened in your district that ultimately took you out of the House? Well, I had, um, you know, as I mentioned, since I had worked with Congressman Wolf, have lived here you know, for 30 years, I, I knew this area well. I mean, it was really a blue-purple area, both in my statehouse district and in Congress. So when I ran in 2014, it was a swing seat, and I won by 16 points because, you know, I got endorsement of federal employees. I knew the district. Now in 16, when Donald Trump was on the ticket, I, I was actually co-chair for Marco Rubio, I um, had some choice words throughout the campaign for Donald Trump and had not endorsed him at all. And when the Access Hollywood tape came out, I said, I'm out, not supporting him. And um, then I did win by six points that year while Donald Trump lost my district by 12 points. And then in 18, obviously, after the reality of Donald Trump came into office and you know was regularly attacking people in my district <laughs> as the swamp and, and just sort of all the ugliness. I have a very diverse district, which is, you know, I think what the country will look like in the future. I enjoyed uh, working in a diverse district, but it obviously reacted very strongly against Donald Trump. And when when a leader, whether it's Obama or Trump, try and pull it oh, far away from that, I think the country responds. Barbara, as a as a Republican congresswoman from Northern Virginia, you you were both critical of Donald Trump when he ran for president and indeed while he was in office. Um, on the other hand, you did vote to support his agenda pretty consistently. I think ninety eight percent support for the president. How much did that have to do with the way your district flipped? Did they turn against Trump, or maybe did they think that you were too closely aligned with him? Well, I think th- those numbers were always sort of misguided in in the sense that. The, the centrist uh, Republicans had higher numbers because it wasn't a Trump agenda. It was the Republican Congress passing bills that then Trump signed. So bills like keeping the government open that the Freedom Caucus opposed, I supported. So a lot of the Trump so-called agenda that people didn't like were the things that he said, the things that didn't pass, the things that didn't get anywhere. But it was also the, the 2018 was a rejection of him personally, which I think is why you saw, you know, in the swing districts and the suburban districts, we were kind of wiped out in 2018. I think we, you know, I think we, we all agree that Donald Trump is a different kind of politician, uh, almost an anti-ideologue. He's not a classic American conservative, yet he is he is explicitly anti-democratic, small d. Um, and 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 so, but now we have a situation where he is the cult figure. So so I'm wondering, have the values of the party so warped under Donald Trump that it is unsavable? Uh, no, I, I I think I think you know things can turn around fairly quickly. And I look at things like the CPAC, the conservative conference, where they did a poll about who they wanted to be the nominee in 2024. Now, mind you, this was Trump's own pollster at his basically family gathering because it was a very Trump. They had a golden Trump statue there. So it was a very Trump friendly (laughs) audience. And he only got 55 percent of the vote. 
Now, if you can, you know, imagine if you have a family gathering and say, hey, do you guys like me? And only 55% say yes, you've got a pretty big problem. So I think even those who maybe liked him or liked his policies realize he's not the future. Well, Barbara Comstock, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be with you. That was Barbara Comstock, former Congresswoman of Virginia, and now a senior advisor at the Memphis-based lobbying firm, Baker Donaldson. Well, you know, a former Congresswoman exemplified the transition that Larry and Nikki discussed when we talked to them about the the historical process, right? The the radicalization of the Republican Party, right? Barbara Comstock is a classic Republican. She's also really optimistic. She seems to think that she and the handful of people in power who think like she does and stand up to Donald Trump are the future of the party. And I think, you know, we really have to face the fact that classic Republicans are few in number and almost completely out of power. Thinking back to that conversation we had with Nikki and Larry, I have to say they were a lot less optimistic than Barbara about the prospects for the Republican Party. So why don't we play the rest of it? Let's do that, guys. And We're going to pick up where, Will, you were asking, Nikki, about the prospects for American democracy in the 21st century, given how uninclusive the country was at its founding and for much of its history. Nikki, I wonder if we're not kind of reverting back to our true selves as a country. I hate to think of it this way, but let's remember the country started as a slave-owning republic. Even after the Civil War perpetuated Jim Crow for a century, we denied women the right to vote for 150 years after the founding of the country. The Constitution doesn't even mention democracy. I mean, we haven't been a democracy in our history really until the 1960s. So a relatively short period of our national history has been really fully functioning democracy. Are we reverting to the norm um, with Trump and with our current crises? Do you think we have the capacity to kind of reach escape velocity and continue to perfect this democracy? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reason to be pessimistic. I mean, we've lived through periods of democratic contraction or or backsliding before. Um, It is definitely the case that America, I'm not even sure after 1965, has fully embodied um, the kind of liberal democracy that we imagine. And so I would say that I feel hopeful in the sense that there is a real emphasis right now on democracy. One of the things that you see in Joe Biden's speeches is that he is very committed to putting democracy and a debate about democracy at the center of his presidency. Um, So in his inauguration speech, he used the word democracy more than any other presidential inauguration in history. He talked about the infrastructure of democracy because Joe Biden loves infrastructure. Um, So I feel hope in the sense that that kind of almost theoretical or philosophical talk about democracy coming from the president suggests that there is some space for us to tackle a big question like that. All that hope now released, let me say that I feel super pessimistic um, about us getting there anytime soon, because there is this real moment of democratic retrenchment that we're seeing at the state level. There's much more danger ahead, I think, than hope. Um, But I think that we have to 
hold on to uh, those places where people are willing to be imaginative when they think about what's next. And I think that gets to your your question. Democracy in the United States has always been imperfectly practiced. And that means that we should allow ourselves to imagine more capaciously what it might look like, because the older models never really functioned as a purely liberal democracy in a multiracial society um, dedicated to justice and equality. Larry and Nikki, both of you, let me just follow up with a quick question. Do you think there is an agenda of the Republican Party now, a policy agenda that is bigger than Donald Trump? I mean, what is it that Republicans want? What would they like to accomplish? Or is that now just a naive question? I don't think it's a naive question, but I do think it's a difficult one to answer. Remember that in the 2020 election, when the Republican Party had a chance to outline its platform, it passed a platform that was basically like whatever Donald Trump says. There certainly are things like continuing to try to lower taxes um, where they can come together as a party. But as a sort of vision for the country that an agenda or a platform represents, that was upended by the Trump presidency, and they haven't figured out a way to knit it back together. So now it is a party that is held together as much by affective claims than it is by public policy. Mm -hmm. Larry, you saw that uh, Paul Ryan speech in which he kind of tried to say, hey, Reagan Republicanism, that's where we should be going. Is there still an appetite in the Republican Party for that? Or does that feel like kind of, you know, lukewarm oatmeal to to the Trump Republicans? There is absolutely an appetite for that among 25 to 30 percent of the Republican rank and file. Now, the other, you know, 70 to 75 percent, good luck trying to convince them. They have been weaned away from I wouldn't even call, I can't say moderate conservative Reaganism because it wasn't moderate conservatism, but they've been weaned away from that. And they have had rich red meat, bloody red meat since Donald Trump came uh, down those escalator stairs and started talking about immigration and the other issues that he based his 2016 campaign on. They're not moving. And the Republican Party has been shrinking the base of it. The moderate, I would call the moderate, I'd say moderate conservative to mainstream conservative Republicans have been moving away from the Republican Party entirely. So it's easier for a Trump-like character to win the presidential nomination the next time. Right. So Nikki, for years, we've heard in the post-Reagan years, Republicans bow to the memory of Ronald Reagan. So long after Reagan faded from power and even faded from popularity, to be a visible Republican, one had to pay homage to the memory and agenda of Ronald Reagan. Do you see a Republican Party going forward where Donald Trump plays that same role? Oh, that's a great question. Um, because, you know, even in Reagan's case, the thing that was being paid homage to was almost mythical, right? Reagan became very malleable and would be whoever the person needed him to be um, in order to fit their campaign. In the case of Donald Trump, I think it's it's somewhat different because it's not just about like Reagan and his personality and attaching yourself to his popularity. There is a kind of personal loyalty that Donald Trump demands that just creates a different dynamic. So yes, he might continue to be a totem in the party. Although you could imagine once Donald Trump has 
shuffled off this mortal coil that, you know, he's not there to beat you up anymore. Maybe you don't need to tip your hat to him every time that you speak. But he has, I think, fundamentally changed the party. So even if 20 years from now, Republicans don't find themselves having to bow before Donald Trump or Donald Trump's legacy, the ways that he has changed the party, I think, will continue on. Um, I think it will look different, though, from Reagan, because they play a different role in relationship to the party. Reagan represented, in some ways, an ideology, and Donald Trump represents an identity. And those are two very different things. Well, Reagan also had like major chords playing in the background of his theme music. He was a winner. He was triumphant. He made you think wonderful, positive things about America, its past and its future. Donald Trump has never really won, right? He's a he's a multiple failure, and he's not led the Republican Party to glory or power the way Reagan did in two consecutive elections and much more and much longer. Actually, three consecutive elections, right? So, so there is a different story and memory there in terms of what the party gets out of each of these two leaders. Reagan was about winning, right? Hey, Siva. You just brought up a very important point. I hadn't thought of it this way. Uh, the Republicans love what Donald Trump stands for. They love what he said and how he said it. And yet he lost uh, by 3 million votes in 2016 and 7 million votes in 2020. And instead of concluding that we need to change our message and do better to start winning more Americans again, Republicans have concluded that in order to keep what they like about Donald Trump, we need to change the electorate. And what do they mean by changing the electorate? Disfranchising millions of people. That's what they mean by changing the electorate. That's how they see their future. That's how they see maintaining power. And we're watching it play out all over the country. And it is frightening. Well, Larry Sabato, Nicole Hemmer, you have shown us that democracy is still somewhat, maybe even gravely, in danger. And for that, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Glad we could lift you up. I'm glad I took my antidepressant. <laughs> it, it means we're going to have to have another season. Good. was Larry Sabato, political scientist, pollster, and beloved teacher. He's the director of the Center for Politics right here at the University of Virginia. We also spoke with Nicole Hemmer. She's a political historian who specializes in the media and the far right, and she's the author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics. You can listen to Nikki on our very first episode published in July of 2020. It's called Illiberal Media. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We'll be right back. Will, our conversation with uh, Barbara Comstock, with Nikki Hemmer, with Larry Sabato really brings me back to so much of what inspired us to do this podcast in the first place. You know, you and I had been talking for some time about all of these different strains of illiberalism, these these direct overt threats to the the practice of democracy to to democratic norms and values and and of course, you know, we saw it so directly here in the United States during the reign of Donald Trump. 
But as we've explored this last season, it's pretty powerful around the world as well. Yeah, democracy is really difficult. It's hard to make it work right. And there are a lot of people who frankly oppose democracy. You know, listening to Barbara Comstock, on the one hand, it's a refreshing voice to, to remind us that there are people in the Republican Party who want the Republican Party to repair itself after Donald Trump. I was reminded, you know, about Ronald Reagan, who, you know, he, he used to be a Democrat and he, he said he, he didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left him. You know, it, it became too liberal. And I was thinking a little bit about Barbara in the same way. I think she was trying to tell us, I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party is leaving me. Right, right. It's becoming too right wing. You know, that, but, but there's a bigger problem here. And I think it's one that we've confronted throughout our, our time doing this podcast. And that is the extent to which white supremacy uh, sets the tone, maybe motivates so much of the anti-democratic energy in this country. And, you know, while white supremacy has been at work in the Republican Party since 1964, and certainly the Democratic Party for a lot longer than that, it seems now to be a proud and loud part of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, we, we saw it on full display in Charlottesville in August of 2017. We saw it on full display in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. We heard it come from the mouth of Donald Trump time and time again. You know, I, I, I just wonder whether the Republican Party and its leaders have the will or even the desire to confront white supremacy at its core? Well, I think we have an answer to that question in the recent efforts by a number of state legislative houses to effectively ban the teaching of racism in the public schools and public universities. Yeah, This seems like an extraordinary step to take because now they're saying the quiet part out loud, as the saying goes, which is, we don't want to hear your history of racism. We don't want to hear your histories of Jim Crow segregation and of the Klan and of lynching and of white supremacy. Nope, none of that fits into our desired history, our ideal history of the past, which is just about the founders and about the Constitution and about equality and the land of opportunity. Well, unfortunately, history doesn't care if you want to hear it or not. It's going to be there. Right. Well, that does it for this episode from the Archives of Democracy in Danger. Season six will start dropping in February. In the meantime, we'll be rebroadcasting some of our best episodes. So please catch up on any shows you missed. And don't be a stranger. Shoot us a tweet at DND Podcast. That's D I N D Podcast. And visit our webpage. You can find show notes, background readings, and updates on our upcoming shows. D&D is produced by me, Robert Armengall. Rebecca Berry is our associate producer. Ellie Bashkow engineers the show. Our interns are Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. Until next time. 